if I may be allowed a word of warning to the present vicar of Fullwood, always beware of exciting annual parochial church meetings. They are dangerous, uh, so be careful. Please turn back to John chapter 16, or John 15 and 16, page 1083, I think it was. Now that I've unexpectedly got a, a little series of two sermons together, uh, I've got a mini-series within this last word of Jesus, and therefore I'm putting alongside the titles that are in the uh, card, my own little subtitles. I want the subtitle today, without getting away from the text at all, The Church Under Attack, and next week, The Church On The Attack. Because actually those two things go very much together, and they're very much involved in these verses I read in the Church Wingham newspaper the other week. Normally the Church Wingham newspaper drives me up the wall, but the other week I did read one or two things that kept me from driving up the wall. Uh, And I read an article by the ex-Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, where he pointed out that the church in the West can learn a great deal of lessons from the church in the Sudan. And he went on to explain why. Uh, A very telling article. A church under pressure. A church that's been persecuted, a church that's growing, a church that's vibrant, and often the opposite has been true in the West. So, sometimes when the church is under attack, the church can be on the attack. And it's my prayer that this little end to our series in these famous words of Jesus might help us in that. Thirty-five years ago, I think it was exactly thirty-five years ago, I gave a a series of Bible readings at what was then the IVF conference, now the UCCF conference of students at Swanwick. There are two very distinguished members of this congregation this evening who were there on that occasion. Not then, I think, husband and wife, but husband and wife now. Uh, So they've survived. Uh, And when I had to do the Bible readings that year... um, the students gave me the subject I had to talk on. Those days, students told you what you had to preach on. They sometimes told you what you had to say. They were very uh, strict for students in those days. And I was given John 15. And John 15 had always been, until then, a kind of chapter I found tricky. But I learned something, spending time preparing it, and uh, it's been with me ever since. There are three great commands in John 15. We've been looking at them, two of them already. The first command, abide in me, remain in me, that comes in the early verses. The second command, love one another, we've looked at that this last week. And the third command, right at the very end, bear witness. It either is in the indicative or the imperative, but I take it as a command. You must bear witness. And if you think of it, they merge. It's the relationship with Christ, abide in me, and when I do abide in him, then I shall find the incentive to love one another, my relationship within the church. And it's as we love one another that we bear witness in the world, for that's how best we bear witness. The Apostle John, who wrote both the Gospel and uh, three letters, one of which we know best, John wrote two verses that are very similar. In John 1, 18 in the Gospel, he said, Nobody's ever seen God at any time. The one and only Son of God, he has made him known. I understand that. Nobody knows what God looks like. But Jesus dares to say that he has made him known. This very passage, whoever has seen me, or this very, uh, these paragraphs, whoever has seen me has seen the Father in John 14. I understand that. But then in 1 John 4 and 12, the letter, he says it again. Nobody's ever seen God at any time. Then, this is the bit, if we love 
one another. God lives in us. And that hits. You see, nobody can see God. Nobody nowadays can see Jesus. But if we love one another, if we obey that second command because we're abiding in Christ, then they do see God as we love one another. But of course there's a challenge in that word, bear witness. Bearing witness is not just sort of being known as a Christian, saying a few words every now and again. The word for bear witness, as I guess many of you know, is the word for martyr. Stephen the martyr, Stephen the witness. So bearing witness is actually a very costly procedure. And it's my guess that some of us in this year of 1 plus 1 equals 2,000 are beginning to find that. You see, if I uh, want to, to introduce somebody to Christ, there are sort of things the devil puts in the way of trying to stop me. And one of the things, that it goes something like this, look, if I'm going to try to bring my friend to some special event or witness to him or to her, it may spoil a good relationship. It may backfire. The kind of love relationship might be hurt. So I'll, I'll keep back. Forgetting that my greatest love for my friend and my neighbour is to lead them to Christ. So somewhere I need to take a risk. But love, you see, is vulnerable. And we hold back because, in an odd kind of way, we think it might spoil a love relationship. Now, these words of Jesus, taught they are the last words of Jesus, or the last words before he went to the cross, these last words of Jesus are a reminder of what it's like to be under attack. And he's very honest. Oh, next week we'll see the other side of the same coin. But this is honest stuff. Just look at verse 2 of chapter 16, which we read. And uh, don't you uh, notice in verse 2 of chapter 16, isn't there one character very clearly in the frame? Who do you think of? Who will put these disciples or their successors out of the synagogue? A time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Saul of Tarsus. Oh yes, that's what he did. He was adamantly sure that Jesus could not be Messiah. He died, he was crucified, and the person who hanged on a tree was cursed. So how can a man who is cursed be Messiah? So I must stop this heresy. Till he recognized, by the grace of God, that he was cursed, but he was cursed for us. But he went around doing exactly what chapter 16, verse 2 said would happen. Ah, but that's only half the story. I also see Saul of Tarsus in that frame. He was lynched by the mob because he dared to speak out. They had to get a, a platoon of Roman soldiers to guard him on a journey because there was an ambush to get rid of him. Do you see it's all turned right round? He once did it to them, now they do it to him. And uh, it hasn't stopped. In the world of today, there are very many people who will want to persecute Christians because they think they're doing a sort of service to a God I don't recognize. I had a letter the other day from Pandang Yamsat, who was in this church, who did a PhD at the University of Sheffield, who is now a leader of the Church of Christ in Nigeria, in the north of Nigeria, where the battle is on. And jihadists are coming from all over the world into that part of the world to foment opposition and they are getting rid of Christians because they think they're doing a service to their God. Now, while it is true, and we shall see it in this passage, 
while it is true that this has ever been, there is a, a movement these days which I think demonstrates that we are going through days when the church is going to be more and more under attack. And praise God it could be that that will be the moment when we take back the attack. If you read the headlines of this week's Church of England newspaper, you get extraordinary headline. 1,500 people got de-baptized in one week. Now, I'm always intrigued how you get de-baptized, whether you sort of draw off the water by a kind. I'm not quite sure I get de-baptized. But 1,500 people, secularists have decided that they want to fight against their nominal Christian heritage and get de-baptized. We are living in that sort of age when the battle is on. So as we read these words, don't think it's just a message to a bygone age, to people living in Muslim lands. It's that, certainly. But it's more. Three things to look at. Notice the reality of the battle that we're in. And the reality of the battle is a story of rejection. That's a strong language in verse 18. Quite straightforwardly, chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Strong words. And he would go on later on in verses 23 to 25 to say how much they'd hated him. And they hated him all the more because he did things that showed them up. They were made to feel guilty. And they didn't like it. We do forget because we think at least in our society most people have got a kind of kind view of Jesus. Please don't be conned. More and more people will hate the Jesus of the New Testament. They don't mind the stained glass Jesus who never existed. But the Jesus who said the kind of things he said and who challenged in a kind of way he did was hated and will be hated. It was the attitude of the world, verse 19. They didn't belong to the world. If they had, then the world would be happy with them. But the world hated them because, you see, they were in darkness and their deeds were evil and they hated Christ. And so they would hate the disciples. And so sooner or later we can expect a rejection if, please note the if, if we're the sort of Christian who really stands up and is counted and who is prepared to say what Jesus said, to stand for what he stood for at any cost. Oh, of course, you can still go to church and nobody will mind that. You keep your head down and believe that everybody's all right so long as they have their own views and religion, but stand for Christ. And this will be the story, a story of rejection. Secondly, a story of persecution. Here is Jesus talking to the disciples, and in verse 20, talk, he uses that word. He uses the word uh, in, in verse 20, they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The actual word persecute means pursue, chase you. Saul of Tarsus has already been in our sermon. Let me bring, it, bring him back one day, once more. Do you remember how at the moment before he was converted, Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus road heard a voice from heaven, and what did the voice from heaven say? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Wait a minute, Paul could have said. I'm not persecuting you. I've never met you. It's not you I'm persecuting. It's your church I'm persecuting. But Jesus wants to say, if you persecute my people, you persecute me. Because the head in heaven is crying out for the body on earth. And Jesus dares to say all these things. Verse 3 of chapter 16 they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. So to deny Jesus 
To reject Jesus means you don't know God at all. These are strong words. But that is what these early disciples were promised. The story of rejection. The story of persecution. Because they followed him. I forget how long ago it was. It must be about uh, 30 years ago. I was then chairman of a missionary society called the Sudan United Mission which to make life complicated worked in North Nigeria, but that was where we are. And I was in North Nigeria, and I was then a man of about, I don't know, in my 30s anyway, uh, perhaps just 40. And I went to North Nigeria, and I met an elderly gentleman who very reluctantly uh, showed me the scars where when he was a teenager, a very young man, he had been left as if dead He had been burnt to death, or almost burnt to death, because he turned away from animism and became a Christian. And the the, the lovely touch about this man is that he would insist on calling me father. Uh, Not because I was a clergyman, but because I chaired the missionary society that first sent the missionaries, through whom he got the gospel. So this elderly man, who'd been through more than I can ever know, called me father. I wasn't fit for the title. But it was very moving to think that this is what he went through. Now, for a long time, I've often thought, well, that's a world gone by. That's an age not not happening now. I challenge you to pick up the Lent stuff produced by the Barnabas Fund, where every day we pray for a, a part of the persecuted world. And you will read these terrible things happening in many, many parts of our world. And I'm very saddened. There's been all sorts of Arguments. Why do people put things on blogs and Facebooks and argue in public and write open letters? Arguments about the veracity of Patrick Sukde and some of the things he's been doing. And I'm saddened by it that when people are dying for their faith, we engage in nitpicking and infighting. But you see, they are dying for their faith, like this man whom it happened years and years and years ago. This is our contemporary world. About three years ago, I was down uh, doing a convention in Bath. Always say Bath and not Bath. You do know that, don't you? I was a convention in Bath, and we had this uh, clergy meeting. And the clergy meeting had the title, Beating Burnout. Now, Why I was given the title of beating burnout, I cannot know, except I was still alive, and I was in my 70s, so presumably I thought I must have beaten burnout somewhere down the line, otherwise I'd have been dead. So I I, I spoke about beating burnout, and I gave them uh, a little Bible exposition from Philippians. Can't think now how I managed to make it fit, but I did, uh, up to their title. Always remember, the script is more important than the title you give you. Just make the title fit your scripture. Anyway, I started off by saying to the, my clergy friends, I said, let's not take ourselves so seriously. At this time, at this year, it was 450 years after Latimer, Ridley, Cranmer died for their faith. And I said, friends, they weren't facing burnout. They were facing burn up. And they were burnt up. And here we are going on about the fact that we're stressed, we're under pressure. Oh, of course, I sort of took it half seriously. But let's be honest, 
when you and I live in a world where sometimes we're under pressure and sometimes we follow Christ and he asks for some sacrifice and we are just a little under pressure, just remember what some people paid that we might have the gospel to preach. These men died. I stand by the monument in Martyr's Memorial in Oxford and I look at it and I say, how do I convince people I preach to today, a younger generation, that these people were willing to die for doctrine. They died for truth. The people who burnt them would have claimed to be Christians. And yet, because they believed the truth of the gospel of justification by faith, they were prepared to die for it. Are we of that ilk today? Why bother with doctrine? And I want to suggest to you that if we are true and we stand with them, then there will be. Maybe burn out. But for some it is burn up. A story, the reason, uh, the reality of the battle, a story of rejection, a story of persecution. What about the reason for the battle? Why? Why? That's the second point, the reason for the battle. Well, the first reason was separation from the world. Verse 19, you don't belong to the world, and so the world hates you. And if in this series we've gone on to John 17, when Jesus prays, he prays that his disciples wouldn't be taken out of the world, but that they'd be kept in the world. That is, he, he wants them to be Christians in the midst of the heat. He doesn't want them to go out into a wrong kind of ghetto. He wants them in the world to be separate and different. There's a man in the New Testament called Demas. Come across Demas. Demas was a, a loyal servant of Paul, a converted Christian, we assume, who'd accompanied Paul. And then there comes this little tragic epitaph. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. And I used to think, and I preached on it, well, love this present world, perhaps Demas was having problems, sex temptation, temptation about money and greed. Was that what made him forsake? No, I've, I've got more convinced. Loving this present world was much more basic. Where was Paul when Paul wrote those words? In prison. And Paul was quite determined, Demas was quite determined, if Paul's going to die for his faith, I'm not, this present world is much too pleasant. So he left. Or, what about Judas? Have you pondered Judas? What was it that made Judas betray Jesus? The Gospels are fairly clear, I think. It's when Jesus said, about after the anointing by Mary, he said, look, she's anointed me for my burial. At that point, it says, Judas went out and started to finalise the plans for handing over Jesus. The 30 pieces of silver were rather nice, but it wasn't just money. Judas, you see, had worked it out. Burial, uh, don't count me in. Burial, I'm not going to be there for burial. Isn't it a tragic irony? How many disciples died at the cross? One. And who was the disciple who died at the cross? Judas. He took his own life. You see, he decided to save his life. And he lost it. So if I am separated from the world, if I am going to be different, I can expect that it will be costly. And that's the reason why the world will hate me, because I am different. The world doesn't like Christians who show them up. Oh, we love Christians, we love non-Christians in the world and want to win them. But you see, we hate the world and all it stands for in that sense. 
because it's leading people into delusion, separation from the world, and secondly, identification with the Lord. You see, it's because we are with him and like him that we should be treated like this. Verse 21, they will treat you this way because of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. They'll treat you because you are with me. And that, of course, is, we'll see it a little bit next week, in the Acts of the Apostles, as these disciples stand true to Jesus, they begin to suffer. And at the moment they begin to suffer, the gospel begins to spread. The Sudan story, way back then, it's going to happen again and again. Because we are nearest to Christ when we begin to suffer like him. Way back in the old days when we had few choruses. One or two people here remember CSSM choruses which began with number one, a little talk with Jesus makes it right all right. If you think we have some ditties today, we had some terrible ditties in those days. We really did. I could sing a, a few ditties. But we, we, we sang a, a song which went, be like Jesus, this my song, in the night, day and in the throng, be like Jesus all day long, I would be like Jesus. It sounded nice. What did I mean by it? Well, I like to be like Jesus. When this passage is being read, being like Jesus means going the way of the cross. Taking up our cross and following him. The fellowship of his sufferings. Jesus once said about a great man in scripture, Abraham, Abraham saw my day, he rejoiced to see my day, he saw it and was glad. How did Abraham see the day of Jesus? Wasn't it when up, up a mountain called Moriah, right next door to Calvary geographically, he was told by God to kill his son and he had a knife poised to put it into his son Isaac. And at the last minute, there was a ram instead of Isaac. And at that moment, Abraham was as near to the heart of God as any man can be. He was like God. The only difference being, when God had his son on the Mount Calvary, the knife didn't stop. He put the knife in. And Jesus took all the punishment upon him. There was no ram to take his place. He was the ram that took our place. And so Abraham was closest to God when he saw him in his sufferings. And these disciples would learn to be like Christ in their sufferings. It is intriguing. In the Acts of the Apostles, the disciples are much more effective and united than they ever were when Jesus was alive. When he had gone, they came alive. The spirits were, that's our theme for next week. And just a, a little closure in a moment but also because they were actually getting closer to what Jesus went through. And when they began to suffer, they found that they were more like Jesus. The reason for the battle, the reality of the battle. One final word about the resources in the battle. How do we face it? Okay, this is going to happen to us. We expect it to be testing. We expect it to come. You read the paper, don't you? A nurse who's dismissed because she offers to pray a couple who lose their license because they refuse to have uh, practicing homosexuals sleeping in their, in their room. Uh, 
uh, it's going to happen more and more and more. Uh, the more we are openly known to follow Christ in what we believe and in the way we behave, we can expect it. So don't, don't think it's not for you. This is where we are. And what will be our resources? Two things. The word of Christ and the witness of the Spirit. The word of Christ is there. Jesus says, uh, verse 4 of chapter 16, I told you this so that when the time comes, you'll remember that I warned you. Forewarned is forearmed. So, when next you or I find ourselves inconvenienced, suffering, because we're a Christian, and we begin to complain, why should it happen to me? Ask yourself the question, why shouldn't it happen to me? And wasn't this what I was offered? He didn't offer me the easy way. He offered me this as the way in which I was going to witness. The word of Christ warned me. And far from the prosperity cult which goes on and on and on and packs churches in certain places because it sounds so lovely. Far from that, Jesus offers us a cross. He offers us the way of suffering. And in the process... A power to live victoriously. We've called this series the last word. Of course, these weren't the last words of Jesus. Almost the last word of Jesus. I think possibly it was the last word of Jesus. Acts 1 verse 8. You shall receive power when the Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Same word. So the last word is, yes, you are going to bear witness and the power of the Spirit will come. And here's our final thought, the word of Christ, the witness of the Spirit. That's the promise of verse 26 and 27. When he comes, the Spirit, he will testify about me and you also must testify. You bear witness, he bears witness. And the Spirit will bear witness in us and through us. I trust you know that the three W's that give you the assurance of salvation. I like my alliteration. The word of the Father, the work of the Son, and the witness of the Spirit. And the witness of the Spirit, Romans 8.16, the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. And the lovely thing about all this is that when these disciples were under pressure, they become, became more aware of the presence of the Lord They felt closer to him. They rejoiced. They were counted worthy to suffer. That I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings, says the Apostle Paul. And so here the Spirit will bear witness. In them, through them. It is a lovely promise on which to end. And it does lead in, of course, to our theme next week when we look at the Spirit's work. And the Spirit's given two names here in verse 26. He's called Counselor. He's called the spirit of truth. And both those words are so meaningful when Christians are under attack. He is counselor, comforter. The word means, the Greek word literally means somebody who's called alongside to strengthen us. And in the midst of the battle, we have got this strength. But he's also the spirit of truth who comes to speak through us and to work through us. So it is my longing and hope, 
I've just come back from doing a little weekend at Birkenhead. Those who know him, Chris Slater sends his love to everybody in Fullwood. He's the curate to this church I've been doing a little weekend for. Uh, in, in a, a UPA urban priority area, they're battling on, uh, doing a great job. And we were doing Nehemiah together uh, and, and daring to look at the fact that when it does look as if things around them are falling down, uh, God can... Rebuild. It's often at that moment when you become aware of the mess we're in that we trust God to do something different. And so here, the spirit of truth comes to enable us to be effective for him. You see, the promise is, the promise from Jesus elsewhere is that when it comes to this moment, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Lovely promise that. And it's that that we need to remember when we're under attack. When, I, when we, used to, we used to sing these militant hymns, Onward Christian Soldiers Marching As to War. Not the sort of popular hymns of today, but we used to sing them. I used to enjoy sort of militant hymns. And uh, in that nice hymn, Gates of Hell Shall Never Against That Church Prevail, as a little lad in a little church in Lancashire, well, it wasn't all that little, but compared with this lot, it was little. Uh, and uh, I, I remember singing it, and suddenly it dawned on me. I'd always got the picture that the Satan was on the attack and we were just holding on like grim death and we're just managing. Hey, but wait a minute, I was singing, gates of hell shall never. We're doing the attacking. I looked around the congregation and thought, I can't really believe that Satan is quaking at the look of us. We don't look like we're make, making the gates of hell uh, tremble. But that is a promise that when we're under attack, we can go to be on the attack. In a minute, uh, we're going to sing out, what was allowed, we preachers to choose the last hymn. And we're going to sing that great hymn, We Rest on the Our Shield, the Die Defender. Let me just, again, I may have said it before, I'm sure I have. Let me tell you that 50 years ago, this hymn, I think it's 51 years ago now, this hymn was sung by Jim Elliot and his companion, who went to their death, went out to take the gospel to the Alka Indians, and they were slaughtered. And they went out having sung the hymn, We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go in faith, our own great weakness feeling. And you may remember those words of uh, Jim Elliot. You've probably heard them. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And out they went. Fifty years ago, I was a young curate. I was trying to keep a youth group listening to the epilogue, which they normally didn't. Uh, but uh, we, we got a thing called a sound strip. None of this technology of today. A sound strip was a few uh, uh, slides and a tape recording, and you had to make sure they coincided. And we had this sound strip of Jim Elliot going out to his death. Oh, it was primitive. Oh, it was uh, and it, because I was playing it, it probably didn't, didn't play properly at all. I mean, I, I normally make a mess of anything practical. But I remember this noisy, rebellious youth club listened. They spotted reality. That if these guys were willing to take that risk for what they believed, all this religious stuff might, after all, be for real people. In some way, I think, we may find ourselves in an age when we could be used by God to show that when the church is under attack, we've got a message that's real. 
And my prayer is that the spirit of truth, the strengthener, the comforter, will nerve us for the fight. Yes, expect the attack, but go on the attack. Let me pray.